would you say you do here? I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. Can't you understand it? What the hell is wrong with you people? Hello, and welcome back to another edition of the Baked and Awake podcast. This is Steve, and I thank you for joining me today. December's upon us, and it's the traditional holiday season. I hope you all are already enjoying this time of year and have already had some great get-togethers with family and friends. We talked in my most recent episode about, you know, modern white guilt, Western guilt, American guilt over the Thanksgiving holiday. It's a complicated and nuanced thing. The more aware we are of what our traditions might really have in terms of carried subtext, carried karma, shit's real. It's something to, to feel inside and something to sit with. For me, on balance, at the end of it all, yeah, we still celebrate a feast day on Thanksgiving Day. We do. Um, but we talk about it. We talk about it leading up to Thanksgiving. We talked about it a little bit on Thanksgiving. And I even made my poor seven-year-old son watch a like 10-minute YouTube video about it after Thanksgiving. Talking about the controversial and potentially much tougher to grapple with realities of what went down oh so long ago on the so-called first Thanksgiving. But we're going to leave all that behind. We're listening to some chill holiday tunes in the background here right at the moment. Watching a little like fireplace for your home loop. Standing here in my living room talking to you on the phone. But yeah, it is the holidays as far as I'm concerned, and we're looking forward to Christmas in our house. Today, we're going to be taking on the topic of Dr. Wilhelm Reich in earnest. If you haven't already, go back and listen to my last episode, which closed out with a short, around 10-minute voice recording by Dr. Reich himself, recorded at a point later in his career when he was certainly already heavily embattled by forces that surrounded him and his controversial work. The idea for this episode was suggested to me more than once, more recently, however, by a good friend, Brittany, a.k.a. Secretarian, fellow member of the Tartary Exertus Discord community, where we spend a lot of time together in there chatting, sharing information, sharing books, documents, tidbits from the World Wide Web, all about all subjects, Tartarian mystery, mud flood related, civilization reset narrative related and 
the entire panoply of esoteric topics, subject matter, areas of interest. It's an amazing community. It's over 500 members strong, and some really amazing discovery has taken place in there as part of that community for myself already, more than once, many times over. So when Brittany asked me if I had plans to do a treatment on Reich, to to take him on as a subject for the podcast. I was excited to be reminded about him once again. I I don't know if it was my friend Legion of the Goat, a local here in the Pacific Northwest and longtime listener, or somebody else who had suggested it prior to that, but when Brittany brought it back up, I was like, yes, let's go. Let's get in. So get comfortable, get yourself a drink, Get something rolled up, maybe two somethings rolled up. I'm at close to 3,000 words on this topic already in notes alone, and I'm probably going to have to pause and write a little bit more before I get to our conclusion here today. That'll all be seamless for you guys on the experience end, but I guess what I'm saying there is I've indicated a couple times recently The pace of release may be slowing down slightly here at the show, but we're not stopping at all. And the pace of release is directly timed or tied to the amount of effort I'm putting into the shows themselves, the show notes, the resources that'll be available for you for your own follow-up investigations. Check the show notes. You're going to see a lot of links in there that can direct you to a bunch of other opportunities to learn more about Wilhelm Reich and subjects related to this podcast episode. All right, I'm going to wrap wrap this up, get upstairs to the studio, get after this topic together. We made it upstairs. Uh, just listened to playback on that intro. Recorded that on the iPhone. And uh, I'm, I'm going to leave it, you know, with the only the lightest of editing improvements for, like, noise reduction. But I don't like it. Okay, and the reason why I don't like it is because it's it's harsh, it's poppy, it's got a bunch of hard peas in there that seem to have almost overcome the phone microphone. And I'm leaving it in simply to illustrate one of the many challenges that goes along with like keeping a consistent form and style and execution to anybody's podcast this podcast my podcast <laughs> every time you try to do something different it's like in in many ways it's like starting over from scratch you you use a different microphone you've got to process that track differently you add a guest have someone call in you've got a bunch of logistics overhead on that front it's all fine it's all fun it's part of the process It's absolutely fine. Uh, And I actually like using 
the phone to record now and then just based on the simple flexibility that it provides. I mean, you've got something ready to record with you at all times. You never leave your home without a recorder anymore. Sometimes when I'm a little bit further in my bag, I get frustrated with that anyway, the fact that there is a recorder in my pocket that may or may not be entirely under my control. But yeah, so please forgive any harsh or unrefined audio in particular in that first few minutes of the episode today. Uh, Feel free to email me about today's topic, that of Dr. Wilhelm Reich, uh, or anything you've heard already up to this point in the 90 episodes of the podcast that have been produced already. Please, by all means, take this as your invitation to email me with ideas for future podcast content. That address has been and remains talk to us at bakedandawake.com. Now, without much further ado, let's get into it. I'm going to open up with a couple of quotes from the good doctor. I am well aware of the fact that the human race has known about the existence of a universal energy related to life for many ages. However, The basic task of natural science consisted of making this energy usable. This is the sole difference between my work and all preceding knowledge. And another. It is sexual energy which governs the structure of human feeling and thinking. That quote is from Reich's book, The Sexual Revolution. I want to head this episode with a short disclaimer and something of a warning. So despite this man's name, Wilhelm Reich, he was Austrian, not actually German. He is from, uh, his early adulthood was in the World War I era. He served in World War I on the losing side, uh, that of Austro-Hungary in fighting against the Russians at that time. Uh, But I do want to point out that he was, in fact, Jewish, I believe raised secular, so perhaps not heavily practicing, but he was not associated with or sympathetic towards the National Socialists, a.k.a. the Nazis, at all. His work and his books were banned in Nazi Germany for the entirety of the Reich's stay of power. I do not know if they've ever been restored to um, the public, you know, intellectual space there at all. In addition, this podcast episode is the most basic of overviews of the life and work of Wilhelm Reich. He wrote dozens of books, many of which have been in air quotes, lost to history. But others have survived, including The Purpose of the Orgasm, 
as well as a treatise on the relationship between neurosis and humans and the rise of fascism called Sex Pole. Sex hyphen pole as in political. But perhaps his most famous general audience book is The Sexual Revolution. You may have heard of that last one, at least insofar as the title or phrase was indeed a sort of battle cry for the beatnik and later hippie generations who ardently embraced, at least for a time, the free love lifestyle and culture that ended in the 1970s with the natural aging of those people coinciding with the terrible and little understood new disease, still unnamed at the time but suspected to be sexually transmitted, that we know today, of course, as the scourge that is AIDS. My point there is that there have been dozens of books written about Reich, both lauding him and condemning him. Documentaries abound all over the internet. This is probably the 500th podcast to cover Wilhelm Reich. Okay, heck, I listened to some myself, just researching the material I'm talking to you about today. Shout out Bones and Tubbs podcast for their own, probably more concise treatment of this subject. Link will be in the show notes for you. Please give them a listen today. In conclusion of this disclaimer, consider this podcast as an invitation, the best one I could create for you, to investigate further on your own. In my opinion, this guy is super interesting. He's weird and not a little off-putting. Some people probably don't need to go any further than this show, and a few might not even want to listen any further today even at all. And with that, it comes to my warning. We'll call it a trigger warning. And not in a condescending or dismissive way. Reich's life story includes experiences of what would seem to be sexual impropriety within his own family, both during his childhood and as a husband and father. So I understand if anyone has been a victim of sexual assault, sexual abuse, other traumatic injuries, especially by family members. I understand if you don't want to listen any further today, please skip this show. And I wish for your continued peace, healing, and safety. I do hope that you'll also return later. We won't Stay on this topic for overly long. I promise. And now for a little more background on Wilhelm Reich. Wilhelm Reich began his career working closely with Dr. Sigmund Freud, thus, in many ways, already near the pinnacle of the science of psychology's prominence amongst his contemporaries. It was a young science then. But I mention that up top only to establish that the subject of today's podcast was, again, my opinion, but from all indications of his early career, he was in fact the furthest thing from a fringe figure. Reich was not some simple, 
self-educated quack with delusions of grandeur. No. In contrast, this person was a very well-respected doctor and would publish extensively throughout his career. In fact, we will come to find out that Reich's written work was apparently enough of an issue to someone that his library was the object of one of the biggest acts of censorship and indeed book burning by elements of the U.S. government that you've probably never heard of. I already mentioned above that his books were, again, physically burned in Nazi Germany as he was completely omitted from the cohort of accepted science. Reich's controversial discovery, that of an energy force he called orgone, a portmanteau of orgasm and organic kind of bases. It was apparently much more than an imaginary or psycho-suggestive red herring. Reich demonstrated under fairly rigorous laboratory conditions that his discovery was detectable, measurable, and even visible to human observations with proper equipment. The bluish glow of orgone energy was seen and recorded several times, and film evidence of those experiments survives to this day. Quote, the discovery of orgone energy was made through consistent, thorough study of energy functions, first in the realm of the psyche, and later in the realm of biological functioning. Wilhelm Reich. This energy force, some might call it a life force, could be and indeed was shown to have noticeable beneficial effects on living patients, animal and human. It was demonstrated as being usable as a power source for traditional motors and devices ordinarily requiring electrical power to operate. Orgone energy was also leveraged to accomplish what was arguably the most impressive and potentially far-reaching application in the form of Reich's Cloudbuster apparatus which by focusing and attracting what he characterized as poisonous orgone energy from the atmosphere downward towards the earth, the cloudbuster could stimulate changes in local climate and precipitate rain where there had been long and stubborn dry spells. This was also demonstrated as effective more than once before Reich's experiments and demonstrations were put to a halt by the U.S. government's Department of Justice under pressure from the Food and Drug Administration and certain elements of the professional medical community. Possibly motivated by fears of serious competition to both of the field's pharmaceuticals and medical palliative care, each of which were already well established in Western society by the time of Reich's apparent groundbreaking advancements. Strange, sad childhood set young Wilhelm Reich apart. For the first years of his life, Reich was educated at home on his family farm by a succession of tutors. Tragedy struck the entire family when at the young age of just 10 years old, Reich discovered and then disclosed his mother's infidelity to his father, 
with one of his tutors. This destroyed his parents' relationship and led to his mother taking her own life. The entire experience was even worse than that, however, as it would seem that the boy, Reich, had in fact attempted to blackmail his own mother by proposing that she, again, warning, that she have sex with him in order to secure his silence about her indiscretion. She reportedly refused, and soon after, the boy went to his father, telling him about the affair. As a consequence, she killed herself in their home. Reich's father did not fare well in the wake of the loss of his wife, declining in health rapidly. Four years later, he would die from tuberculosis. In 1914, as Russia invaded his homeland, still called Austro-Hungary, in the early stages of World War I. The Teenage Reich fled the region known today as the Ukraine, barely evading capture by the Russians. Thousands of others were taken as hostages during the invasion. Many never did return. In his flight, he left behind every possession and all claims to material wealth in order to save his life, like many others. Reich was never able to return to his homeland again. Following his escape from Bukovina, which is the region that he was from, the town he was from, Reich enlisted in the Austrian army, served four years fighting against the Russians and experiencing war as a machine, in his own words. Germany and Austria were defeated by 1918, and the war ended with the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the creation of Poland and Czechoslovakia, and the separation of East Prussia from Germany. Reich's hometown of Bukovina became a part of Romania. Reich was at this post-war time a penniless and more or less transient veteran of the worst war ever known in modernity, and was, as he put it, intellectually starved from his time in the army. He made the decision to enter into education at the University of Vienna's medical program with a focus on the new science of psychology. Reich had already begun to formulate his thesis on human sexuality by the time he became involved with the research work being done by Dr. Sigmund Freud, a grandfather of the science of psychology and arguably its most influential mind of the 20th century. Freud had also identified a mental model of what he called the libido, or natural sexual instincts. Freud's theories explored and attempted to explain a conflict between this natural instinct present in more or less all humans and its frustration and suppression due to societal norms and taboos. 
obviously. The libido could not be indiscriminately indulged by anyone anytime they wished. But Freud saw this as a purely mental construct and did not extend it to theories that possibly the libido had a somatic element. That is to say, that it was tied to a biological force inextricable from the overall health and energy of a person. It's more like my commentary there. To Freud, the libido was something that could be mitigated and even mastered in the service of the higher self. And its goals and desires must be aligned with the ethics and necessities of coexistence in modern society. Despite this position of Freud's later on in his career, in these early stages of the work, Freud would write of the libido that it was, quote, something which is capable of increase, decrease, displacement, and discharge, and which extend itself over the memory traces of an idea like an electric charge over the surface of the body. Freud and his cohorts would in time dilute this promising synopsis into nothing more than a psychological energy or idea. And just a few years on, by 1925, would write that, quote, the libido theory may therefore be, for the present, only pursued by the path of speculation. This was despite Freud's apparent fascination with all matters sexual and famously having conceived of many psychosexual mental disorders, including the very famous to this day Oedipus complex. That being an attraction on the part of male children toward their own mothers in a misguided bid to compete with their fathers. Short citation here. Oedipus, O-E-D-I-P-U-S, was a mythical Greek king of Thebes, a tragic hero in Greek mythology, Oedipus accidentally fulfilled a prophecy that he would end up killing his father and marrying his mother, thereby bringing disaster to his city and family. Just grab that one off of Wikipedia. Reich's pursuit of the libido as a physical aspect of life, however, was undimmed by his mentor's lack of vision, as he saw it. And he resolutely continued to research experiment, and publish writings on his examination of the force that he would soon come to refer to as orgone energy. The release of energy, tied with sexual satisfaction, Reich declared, demonstrated the alleviation of neurotic symptoms in subjects under his observation. The function of the orgasm, according to him, was to provide release for the pent-up orgone energy that otherwise becomes toxic inside the body affecting the whole person and their behaviors. Strikes me that that sounds a little bit like a description of the so-called incels, symptoms and issues. I don't know what we call that today, though. The stance on Reich's part placed him at a distance from the rest of the analysts in the field. As his assertion that the sexual energy was one that could be measured quantitatively, this was neither understood or believed by the medical establishment. 
and insisted that libido was nothing more than, again, a mental state with no potential for direct observation or experimentation. Reich initially began by focusing on treatments intended to ease blockages of the flow of this mysterious energy. But the prevalence in society of generalized misery soon convinced Reich that the path forward lay not in treatment, but in prevention of the hampering of flow of sexual energies in the first place. This led directly to some of Reich's most controversial aspects of his research, as he assumed an outspoken position of asserting that the youthful sexual impulses of adolescence should be allowed, indeed encouraged, that the young persons may develop into more healthy, fulfilled adults, free from societal taboos that unnaturally curb and bottle up their libidos. By encouraging an energetic equilibrium supported by healthy sexual expression, the person's orgone energies would greatly lessen the neurotic symptoms that had, to his mind, demonstrably been shown to afflict people under a more normal-seeming, demure, or conservative, in parentheses I have here, materialistic, mechanistic, repressive upbringing. That's me projecting onto Reich's mentality there. In short, Reich advocated that the kids ought to be able to do the deed, as it were, and with no judgment or censure to be attached to it by their parents or other adult authority figures. This unsurprisingly landed Reich in pretty hot water almost immediately. Reich believed that, quote, you have to revamp your whole way of thinking so that you don't think from the standpoint of the state and the culture, but from the standpoint of what people need and what they suffer from. Then you arrange your social institutions accordingly. Dr. Freud's view was diametrically opposed by now to Reich, with his stated position being that culture comes first, and that it has precedence over animalistic sexual urges, that they must be altered to work within a society in order to support the greater good. This oppositional dichotomy eventually led to Freud dismissing much of Reich's work and their eventual split from working together or even preserving a cordial professional relationship. Undaunted, Reich soldiers on alone. Wilhelm Reich leaves Vienna, and within a few years finds his way to Oslo, Norway's university, and begins a series of clinical experiments, first on mice, suffering from cancer, and then based on what appeared to be promising results, that of reduction in tumor size and increased vitality, both healthy and affected human subjects, to detect and observe orgone energy and its effects on the body. According to Reich, a detectable electrical charge was repeatedly observed on subjects when they felt pleasure. 
electrical sensors connected to the skull and various parts of the body were used to record specific observations. The reverse effect was also observed under conditions where subjects were experiencing sensations of displeasure. In both cases, it's unclear what the stimulus was here. Okay, that's my side note. Many rumors abound of patients sitting naked in orgone accumulator boxes and or being massaged and or being molested in some way by Reich or other researchers. All those claims were vehemently denied by Reich and his group, so a lot of hearsay on that front from what I'm seeing. The takeaway, however, that Reich obtained was the understanding of orgone as being an electrochemical expression of positive force towards the periphery, in parentheses I have the word membrane, of the body when experiencing pleasure. Again, in parentheses, my note, feeling expansive. As well, the concomitant reversal of flow and a lowering of detectable electrical charge when feeling badly or poorly. In parentheses, I say, shrinking, sinking, closing off, etc. Reich said about proving this energy was truly electrical, for if it was, it should be measurable. This, if accepted as having been proven, could fundamentally change many areas of psychological and even medical study and practice. Patients did appear to experience the same positive results as the mice, with apparent tumor shrinkage in those who were sick, increased vitality, and weight gain. It didn't cure any of these patients, though, apparently. Okay, it didn't cure a cancer patient who had cancer. They seemed to get better. They seemed to be more comfortable. They seemed to have some reduction in progression of their disease. Everybody who had cancer and tumors that he tested, both mouse and human, died anyway, eventually. That said... Reich charged no fees for his treatments, and he promised no cures for his experiments on human subjects. This failure to completely cure cancer, you know, full-blown disease, did convince Reich, or reinforce the notion that he already had, that prevention was the path to be followed, and not treatment with the hope of curing someone who already was a victim of disease. He believed the tumors of cancer patients were a symptom of a deeper, generalized disease of the person that must be prevented earlier in life. Reich's experiments went far beyond stopping with observation of human subjects. He reasoned that if this, his orgone energy, was a ubiquitous force, that it should be present in all forms of biological organism. After all, all were goal-seeking organisms with a metabolism and that had innate drives to grow, eat, and reproduce. He tested small mammals, 
the mice we already mentioned, microorganisms, and even otherwise inert organic material for signs of orgone energy, and found it basically everywhere. At the petri dish scale, it was observed that small organisms demonstrated various degrees of motility, that's mobility, right, they can move, and vigor in the test environments. And that as samples aged, they deteriorated into slow decay and revealed themselves as tiny vesicles that displayed a bluish glow, which decreased as the samples began to die. These glowing vesicles, Reich dubbed bions, further observed a visibly glowing field around some of the bions. These bions, in turn, were seen to have an effect on other cells, that effect being antibacterial and antibiotic, extending to the ability to kill such cells, including cancerous cells. Yes, we are talking about an effective, apparently effective cancer treatment that you've likely never heard of. Again, we know that he didn't cure any cancer, and he wasn't claiming to be able to cure cancer, but still there were promising indications of some efficacy against cancerous cells. This strange force, made evident by both its visible aura and effects on other cells, was not actually obviously purely electrical, nor was it magnetic in nature. This was something else entirely. In Reich's words, our mysterious something does not appear to be ordinary electricity or ordinary magnetism. It was at this point that the label orgone was finally applied to the heretofore unnamed force, so designated for Reich's earlier research into the function of the human orgasm that being energetic equilibrium, remember? And its ability to charge organic matter. Orgone energy was, seemingly, powering the motility of the microscopic organisms and even non-living organic samples at the vesicle bion level. Experiments satisfied and results obtained, Reich published Die Bion, B-I-O-N-E, in 1938. His findings were not just panned by the medical community. Reich was subjected to a relentless, year-long, some would say years-long, attack that can fairly be described as character assassination from virtually all sides in the Norwegian press. This rejection of what he no doubt viewed as his greatest discovery was devastating. World War II was also looming, and the expatriate and refugee soon began looking to North America as the best place to attempt to recover from this severe professional setback, one which threatened his formerly prominent standing in the fields of science and medicine. While waiting for a visa to the United States, in 1939, Reich wrote in his diary, quote, I am sitting in a completely empty apartment waiting for my American visa. I have misgivings as to how it will go. I am utterly and horribly alone. 
a separate entry he recorded. It will be quite an undertaking to carry on all the work in America. Essentially, I am a great man. A rarity, as it were. I can't quite believe it myself, however, and that is why I struggle against playing the role of a great man. Sanctuary in America from an already sordid reputation. Uh, before we jump into what will be pretty much the second half of the Reich story here, uh, if you care to join me, I'm about to spark a bowl. going to test out a little CBD flower, some sour space candy from our friends at Calypso CBD for the second half of the episode here, and uh, I hope you guys will get safe with me. THC, CBD, any cannabinoid, you've got at your disposal, and safely imbibed together. Settling in here after a break, and we'll see where this story goes. From here, I promise you it's going somewhere though, so stick with me. Let's smoke though. I should vaporize some of this CBD while I have it too. This flower. That'll be fun. I'll try it both ways. Maybe not today. We're just gonna always start out with just a simple green bowl or something to get the, the impression and the taste off of it. Uh, and this is pleasant. This is pleasant. Um, well, they're calling it sour space candy. I rarely taste the candy elements of these Skittles and other uh, strains that tend to employ those kind of names. But... Um, I think it does have a bit of a diesel uh, character and tone, which is probably hinted at by the beginning portion of the name of this flower from Calypso. So, fun stuff, and uh, I bet I'll get a little bit more flavor here with my next puff, and we'll get back into this story about Wilhelm Reich. Reich left Vienna for Oslo, published in Oslo, and wasn't very successful with his major discovery as far as he was concerned. Reich left Oslo in the wake of professional distress in the form of the public attack on his person and work in the Norwegian press. But perhaps with the benefit of the perspective born of time and distance from these events and people, we may understand that his detractors were probably in all fairness onto something with their judgments against 
the embattled psychologist. By the time he departed Vienna for Oslo, Reich had already left a string of destructive relationships in his wake, some of which pointed to a clear lack of boundaries between his professional aspirations and ideals and his personal conduct and personality flaws. Okay, in short, he was involved with more than one of his patients, leading to disastrous outcomes, including in at least one case, if not two, deaths that arguably could be directly attributed to him personally. Pulling an excerpt from the Wikipedia article, Essay on Reich. One of Reich's first patients was Lori Kahn, a 19-year-old woman with whom he had an affair. Freud had warned analysts not to involve themselves with their patients, but in the early days of psychoanalysis, the warnings went unheeded. According to Reich's diaries, Kahn became ill in November 1920 and died of sepsis after sleeping in a bitterly cold room she had rented as a place for her and Reich to meet. Both his landlady and her parents had forbidden their meetings. Kahn's mother suspected that her daughter had died after a botched, illegal abortion, possibly performed by Reich himself. According to Christopher Turner, author of Adventures in the Orgasmatron, a book about Reich, she found some of her daughter's bloodied underwear in a cupboard. It was a serious allegation to make against a physician. Reich wrote in his diary that the mother had been attracted to him and had made the allegation to damage him. She, the mother, later committed suicide and Reich blamed himself. I'm adding air quotes to blamed himself. If Khan did have an abortion, Turner wrote, she was the first of four of Reich's partners to do so. Annie, his first wife, had several, and his long-term partners, Elsa Lindenberg and Ilsa Ollendorf, his second wife, each had one, supposedly at Reich's insistence. I completely support a woman's right to autonomy over her body and her absolute right to choose to carry a baby or to not carry a baby. Indeed, to have an abortion unequivocally. I'm certainly still cringing as I read that list of 
apparently several times through his life where he found himself in this position with his own spouses. Um, and again and again, th th this appears to have taken place. So, uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Two months after Lori Kahn's death, Reich accepted her friend, Annie Pink, as an analyst. Pink was Reich's fourth female patient, a medical student three months shy of her 19th birthday. He had an affair with her, too, and married her in March 1922 at her father's insistence. Shotgun wedding. With psychoanalysts Otto Fenichel and Edith Buxbaum as witnesses. Annie Reich, Ms. Pink, his new wife, would become a well known psychoanalyst herself. Their marriage produced two daughters, Eva and Lori, both of whom became physicians. Their second daughter, Lori, may still be alive today, and her spelling of her first name is the same as Lori Kahn's, which is L-O-R-E. Lori Reich Rubin, Reich's daughter, also became a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. So it is at this point that I have to shift gears a little bit on Dr. Reich. Of the relationships above and others in Reich's life that have been detailed in many books and stories, I've read them several times now. And he's got a story like this for every woman who was close to him in his entire life, starting all the way back with his own nanny and that odd fixation on his mother from a very early age. He recounts all of this candidly, in some cases in too much detail, <laughs> although with a stark, to my mind, notable lack of honesty even to himself about what's going on in his journals. The longer I look into his life and legacy, the less I'm able to focus on whether or not his orgone accumulators were effective, or if his aggressive kinesthetic approach to therapy, which included little or no talk therapy, instead relying upon powerful painful, relentless massaging of 
the prone and disrobed patient by the analyst until they collapsed into sobbing, convulsive wrecks. Whether this was a valid approach to achieving psychological breakthroughs or not. God, I hope not. <laughs> I can't even concentrate on the question of whether Reich's cloudbuster apparatus indicated by the erstwhile doctor and others to have the ability not only to make rain but to affect and even disrupt the flight paths and functions of flying aircraft including during his time the already fashionable UFOs whether this was actually suppressed by the US government then quickly confiscated upon his incarceration and secretly developed into an anti-alien aircraft weapon system after his death. And this last bit isn't even that far-fetched. It was known that Reich himself was touting the Cloudbuster's effectiveness in just such applications, like shopping it around. He sought investors to further its development. He probably would have taken a defense contract happily <laughs> to, to build Cloudbuster cannons. I mean, this is all about as good as it gets for Steve as far as conspiracy theories go. Like, I want Reich to have been right. I want that orgone energy power regenerating my body's cells and blocking that dastardly 5G radiation. I want to construct a cloudbuster turret and put it on the roof of my house. Get that microclimate management and defensive purposes. I'm all about this stuff. I should be. But it's like it's tainted. It's a tainted well. You know, for me, like many of Reich's detractors, his personal failings were so pervasive and so damaging to those close to him. I mean, they, they look and feel like, you know, horrible ways I handled relationships early in my uh, life. And this was a doctor, a psychoanalyst, a great man, a man, you know, d did this all the way his whole, through his whole life. He never got better in the way he treated people. He wasn't good to his friends or followers either. Very well known to be churlish and hard to be around from everybody's memoirs about this guy. He's a big turd. Uh, smart. You know, smart, though, right? Dazzled him with brilliance. But, you know, it's too much to turn a blind eye to, right? Means and ends, as it were, not being equal. Would-be defenders still assert, you know, that he was a misunderstood genius, a great mind of 20th century medicine, and that his discoveries could have changed the world had they been embraced and allowed to flourish, to have been developed. I'm really not so sure. This man had no license to practice medicine in America. He had been forced to resign from the International Psychoanalytical Association 
in an action led by none other than Anna Freud, daughter of Sigmund, long before that. When Reich was charged by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration of medical fraud, he refused to appear in court to defend himself against the charges. He further failed to order the cessation of therapy sessions by his protégés, leading directly to the arrests of both Reich and one of his cohorts, who, according to Reich, unbeknownst to him, that particular practitioner have been found to have been selling and transporting the, the orgone accumulator cabinets after they were ordered by the government to cease treatments, to cease sales of the hardware, particularly interstate sales, for basically for making unverified medical claims and profiting off the sales of the cabinets. Right when this all went down, Reich, ever the reluctant great man he didn't recognize the authority of the court to subpoena him no no instead he wrote a letter that he sent back which and I, I really admire the cheek I do <laughs> I wish I had the balls this guy had he sent back a letter to these to the court which in part read and I quote My factual position in the case, as well as in the world of science of today, does not permit me to enter the case against the Food and Drug Administration, since such action would, in my mind, imply admission of the authority of this special branch of the government to pass judgment on primordial, pre-atomic, cosmic orgone energy. I, therefore, Rest the case in full confidence in your hands. Again, cheeky as hell. I don't know if that's enough to, <laughs> to not show up in court, though, for some charges of medical fraud. As a result of Reich's refusal to defend himself in court, that's one of those things that when you don't show up, this is what happens. An injunction was granted by default. Okay? They just win, right? Uh, that went down in March of 54. The judge ordered all Reich's accumulators, his parts for them, instructions to make them, that those all be destroyed, that the books of his that mentioned Orgone, a little or a lot, that they be, quote, withheld. That means actually, you know, censored, taken, taken out of circulation, withheld from the public. The government was said to have been investigating him for years. His FBI file is supposedly 789 pages long. I didn't read it. You can read it. Upon his arrest, his personal library was seized, and more than six tons of his extant self-published works were removed from bookstores and libraries and physically burned. 
So there's that. Wright goes to jail and dies in prison just days before his first parole hearing, apparently of a heart attack. And his associate that went to jail with him at the same time, uh, Dr. Michael Silbert, it turns out he himself died soon after serving his term and emerging from prison under what would some would call unusual circumstances. It's really easy to talk of government cover-ups, technology grabs, and assassination by heart attack gun when you've got such sordid details as these. But still, somehow I can't get excited by or fully behind that narrative. Reich seems himself to have told me so. To have betrayed himself as do we all whenever we open our mouths. No irony lost on me right here. When listening to Reich's remaining audio recordings, such as Alone, included at the conclusion of my last episode, for those of you interested in going back and hearing his voice, as well as one called Listen Here, Little Man. An over three-hour-long diatribe is the only word I can come up with to label it. Seems to indicate to me a bit of a megalomaniacal streak in Dr. Reich. This is an aspect of his personality that, while certainly allowed and perhaps even encouraged by those in his inner circle his acolytes, nevertheless largely existed in him, with or without the help of devoted and somewhat desperate followers of his work. And by the way, that alone, or rather listen here, little man, it, you can find it narrated on YouTube by somebody. It's not in Reich's voice. Um... You end up imagining it in his voice when you hear it, if you've ever listened to Alone first, which is actually Reich. But, I mean, his voice comes through so strongly in his, in his written words. It's very much conversational writing in, in so far as that particular piece and a lot of what I've seen. He's very flowery in his language at all times, so... Bellicose, I don't know. But back to it, though. In his personal writings and words, we see things like delusions of grandeur. They're barely disguised by weak lip service being paid to a supposed imposter syndrome that he suffered from not believing that he was as great a man as everyone tells him he is. We read that journal entry up above where he re supposedly reluctantly referred to himself as playing the role of a great man. That comes up over and over again, and listen here, little man. Big surprise, right? 
that was like a response to criticism against him. You know, he was already having a rough patch when he wrote that. Supposedly, nobody was supposed to see it, but yet we all have it, and we had it before he was gone, too. Like, it, it got out while he was alive. Earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that some of Reich's most influential writings had as their core subject matter more of like a popular philosophical focus than anything else. His social commentary and, and uh, sort of idea as contained in the mass psychology of fascism. Uh, he wrote that in 1933 and in that he wrote about how fascists came to power. He explained their rise to prominence as like an inevitable symptom of the sexual repression that was prevalent in society. And that calling out of that and decrying of that became a rallying point of sorts for a French student's general strike like 30 years later in 1968, 35 years later in 1968. Read Reich and act accordingly in big letters was scrawled on protest posters and chanted aloud by more than 200,000 university student strikers as they attempted to break down and overthrow the paradigms of capitalism, American imperialism, and consumer culture that they saw as antithetical to healthy human societies. Copies of the book were hurled at the police that initially attempted to quell protests lasting over seven weeks. Protests and riots that brought business as usual in Paris and much of France almost to a halt. The French government, perhaps correctly, feared outright revolution at the height of things. As trade unions and even some government workers began to strike in solidarity with the students. Not a few either. We're talking over 11 million workers, or close to 25% of the French population around then. In the end, those riots secured significant gains in terms of workers' rights, forced Prime Minister Charles de Gaulle to dissolve the assembly and call for a general election in June of the same year. Although the Gaullists, the prevailing party, emerged victorious from those elections, strides made for the French students and the workforce remained in effect, and the social impact in the time since then is said to be much greater, with a strong case to be made that while not a successful political revolution, the student protests of 1968 did constitute a successful social revolution in France. For his part, Reich took pains to publicly decry the use of his writings by any political group as propaganda to support their political agendas, which I do find a respectable public stance on his part to have taken. Uh, 
Might have been the only safe stance he could take. He had already been kicked out of the Communist Party back in Austria. <laughs> uh, probably not fashionable to be a communist in America, even in the 60s. Um, and yeah, with a name like Wilhelm Reich, he probably just needed to keep his head down <laughs> on the poli political front, uh, even though obviously he was writing about it. So, where are we going with all this? Here's where we're going. And I promise you this is wrapping it up. I knew when I started researching Reich that he had been influential in society and art circles. Even among very elite members of the artistic and writing communities of his time. Earlier in the show I mentioned beatniks and hippies. Let's get a little more specific, though. Devotees of Reich's philosophical points of view included such, and I'm going to stick here just to some people I've personally read and have been influenced by myself once upon a youthful reading career. His fans included Henry Miller, Norman Mailer, Hunter S. Thompson, Ken Kesey, Allen Ginsberg, J.D. Salinger, duh, <laughs> and you guessed it, Jack Kerouac. I told my wife while working on this script that as I was researching into Reich, that I realized all of a sudden have his ideas literally permeated the pages of each of these powerful voices' writings. And it already infected my mind decades ago. Never fully leaving me alone. Never forgotten. If in your youth you were moved by Kerouac's babbling, feverish, on the road. If you were thrilled while being terrified, reading of the chaos and violence so glibly related through Hunter Thompson's embedded journalism in Hell's Angels, You were simultaneously repulsed, scandalized, and enwrapped with Miller's Tropic of Cancer. I know I was. Then you're starting to know what I mean. Without even going back to check, I see Reich's imprint upon the writings of John Steinbeck, Charles Bukowski. It's undeniable. And I may seriously have to sit down with myself and have another look at the good and bad influences these writers have had on me 
and my own worldview up to now. Simply because I see clearly how they themselves have been indelibly marked and changed by their own experiences during their sexual revolution. Again, regarding the research for this show, it was around here in his life that I pulled off the path I had been following with the Reich story. With the writing, the the writing of the, the script. Reorienting upon the lasting effects of his philosophy coming up off the Oregon, coming up off the Cloudbusters the effects of his philosophy on popular culture and indeed all of 20th century American literature, art, and music. I believe this is where Reich's highest ideals have found a form of immortality that may one day be viewed at a sufficient distance from his own egoistic shortfalls and abusive personal relationships, each of which proved to cast too dark a shadow upon his more physical, medical, and scientific pursuits to be ignored. I believe these are the things that served as a magnet for conflict and arrayed his detractors, professional critics, and even whole departments of governments against him. I'm going to share a brief excerpt from a 2011 article published in The Guardian by the same Christopher Turner quoted above for an additional, though not uncritical, perspective on Reich's societal impact. I actually emailed The Guardian asking for permission to reproduce some of this story, and I made a token $5 donation via their website by way of saying thanks. I haven't heard back from them yet, but I'm feeling pretty solid on our footing of using this in like a fair use, non-commercial, non-profit fashion, right? Besides which, we're hereby given The Guardian and Chris Turner full attribution for their work. And I'll provide a link to the full article in the show notes, as always. So, from the article, Wilhelm Reich, the man who invented the sexual revolution. Soon after he arrived in the United States, by which time his former psychoanalytic colleagues were questioning his sanity, Reich invented the Oregon Energy Accumulator, a wooden cupboard about the size of a telephone booth, lined with metal and insulated with steel wool. It was a box in which, it might be said, his ideas about sex came almost prepackaged. Reich considered his orgone accumulator an almost magical device that could improve its user's orgiastic potency, quote, and, by extension, their general and above all, mental health. 
He claimed that it could charge up the body with the life force that circulated in the atmosphere and which he christened orgone energy. In concentrated form, these mysterious currents could not only help dissolve repressions but treat cancer, radiation sickness, and a host of minor ailments. As he saw it, the box's organic material absorbed orgone energy, and the metal lining stopped it from escaping, acting as a, quote, greenhouse, and supposedly causing a noticeable rise in temperature in the box. The charismatic Reich persuaded Albert Einstein to investigate the machine, whose workings seemed to con contradict all known principles of physics. After two weeks of tests, Einstein refuted Reich's claims. However, the Oregon box became fashionable in America in the 1940s and 50s, and Reich grew increasingly notorious as the leader of the new sexual movement that seemed to be sweeping the country. The accumulator was used by such countercultural figureheads as Norman Mailer, J.D. Salinger, Saul Bellow, Paul Goodman, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, Dwight MacDonald, and William S. Burroughs. In the 1970s, Burroughs wrote an article for We magazine, O-U-I, French We, entitled, All the Accumulators I Have Owned. In it, he boasted, quote, Your intrepid reporter, at age 37, achieved spontaneous orgasm, no hands, in an orgone accumulator built in an orange grove in Barr, Texas. At the height of his James Bond fame, Sean Connery swore by the device, and Woody Allen parodied it in Sleeper, his 1973 film, giving it the immortal nickname The Orgasmatron. To Bohemians, the Orgone box was celebrated as a liberation machine, the wardrobe that would lead to utopia. While to conservatives, it was Pandora's box, out of which escaped the Freudian plague. The corrupting influence of anarchism and promiscuous sex. Reich's eccentric device can be seen as a prism through which to look at the conflicts and controversies of his era, which witnessed an unprecedented politicization of sex. When I first came across a reference to the accumulator, I was puzzled and fascinated. Why on earth would a generation seek to shed its sexual repressions by climbing into a closet? And why were others so threatened by it? What does it tell us about the ironies of the sexual revolution that its symbol of liberation was a claustrophobic, metal-lined box.
bit of a long podcast. Am I right? I know. And yet, we've really only just scratched the surface of Wilhelm Reich. And possibly on his lasting impact on society. Reich's sexual revolution is arguably woven into part and parcel virtually every major modern television production. Hollywood blockbuster movies, almost without exception, and the pop music industry pretty much in its entirety. These can all be demonstrated like probably at thesis level to be modern day outcomes of the sexual revolution. This nerfed sexual revolution, however, outwardly still dynamic and unstoppable, is completely subverted. And in my opinion, has been bent to the aims of an increasingly fascist-leaning technocratic superstate here in the United States. Where even as our personal liberties are daily curtailed, our basic human rights to privacy of thought and freedom of expression are revoked. And as our internet becomes less free and more obviously a tool of pervasive mass surveillance than ever. People enjoy greater freedom of sexual expression, good, bad, and ugly, than ever before in history, at least from where I'm sitting. This inescapable worldview is reinforced daily by a spectrum of ubiquitous media that runs the gamut of lightly to hypersexualized content. All of it presented in an endless wave through pervasive public and personal sacred glowing rectangles. These windows through which we measure our coolness and sexiness and effectiveness daily invariably finding ourselves sorely lacking in six-pack abs and striving to put Teslas in the driveways of our miniature McMansions in a doomed bid to take back in consumer goods what we've lost in essential freedom. I want to thank Calypso CBD for their continued support of the podcast and for their safe and effective CBD products. I invite my audience to use the discount code BAKEDANDAWAKE at checkout for 30% off your first order at CalypsoCBD.com. I'd also like to invite you to join me and many other smarter people in researching the mud flood and Grand Tartarian mysteries by becoming a member of the Exertus Tartary Discord community today. Don't forget to tell them Steve sent you when you get there.
for an instant boost of good karma. And finally, please consider including me in your small business person support for your holiday shopping for friends and family. Buy my journal, Big Scary Goals, and my planner, Big Scary Plans, on Amazon today. Links will be in the show notes, and I deeply appreciate each and every sale. Both books are priced at under $10 and make great stocking stuffers. Coming soon on Baked and Awake, we're going to go out with uh, some coming soons for you here and a final puff together. Uh, I'm excited and already working on an Olympia Mud Hunt video uh, with my friend Whistler coming very soon. We're going to debut that first on PeerTube and then on YouTube. I'll tell you guys all about that on the next podcast. Look forward to that. Also looking forward to catching up with Philip Drujanin of Mud Flood Advanced Research, with whom I've had one amazing sit-down talk already. That's available on YouTube for you if you haven't watched that yet and that is a video interview had a great conversation with philip and we need to sit back down and dive in a little deeper on a couple of the points that he brought up in that chat just as much looking forward to a sit down coming up soon with my friend andreas exertus of the exertus tartary discord community we're hoping to planning to i should say discuss all things tartarian mystery and where the research is going in 2020. Uh, In addition, I want you guys to look forward to an upcoming episode with my friend Mike Princeton, where we'll be talking about his work on unveiling a Titan. Prepare to get your mind blown clean open with this one. I'm not going to give you too many spoilers. I'm leaving a link in the show notes. You can work ahead by watching a teaser video about his work, And if you like it, visit his YouTube channel, Stellium7. Finally, the last show that I've got already in the hopper that I'm working on for you for early in the coming year is a conversation with One Pangea Republic. Link will be in the show notes to Pangea's uh, YouTube channel. He's the creator of another one of my favorite channels, though, and I think he should be much more widely viewed. So we are going to start changing that right now Uh, we're taking our time getting ready to sit down together and we're probably going to cover a whole bunch of different topics his content uh, his reactions and impressions on some of the content and material that i've covered uh, here over the time that we've been doing baked and awake so super looking forward to that Um, today's soundtrack is probably going to be a mixture of some sounds from northwest grab as well as some sounds from my favorite longest running contributor to the music soundscape of Baked and Awake, Auntie Luode. Uh, Always super appreciate both of your contributions to the show and it makes it so much better. So support your independent local artists, musicians, creators, however you can, wherever you can. Give them a hug if you see them in person. Tell them you listen to their song. Tell me you listened to my podcast. 
Go be good to somebody. Smoke some indica. And do shit anyway.